Hey, my name's Jamie Poisson, and I'm the host of Frontburner. It's the CBC's daily news podcast. And every day we're discussing the big events and fault lines shaping Canada and the world. Politics, economics, social movements, you name it. Sometimes we even talk about really fun stuff like the enduring relevance of Lord of the Rings. You can hear Frontburner on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. I'm Dr. Brian Goldman. Welcome to The Dose. Today, another podcast, unfortunately, another variant of concern to discuss. B1617, the strain originally identified in India, now known as the Delta variant. This week, the WHO announced it was renaming the variants using letters from the Greek alphabet. And the newly named Delta variant is potentially driving a third wave in the UK. Hi, Dr. Gurdasani. Hello. So what do you think of this new naming convention? Um, I think it's useful. You know, it, it means that we don't have to refer to variants as per the place we're first identified, which may, of course, have sort of slightly racist connotations. And also, you know, the current na- nomenclature is quite complicated for most people to follow, even for scientists. So I think it's good to have a sort of naming convention that people can understand and refer to quite easily without having to refer to the country of origin. Can I ask you to say, hi, my name is, and just introduce yourself in a sentence or two? Sure. Um, Hi, my name is Dr. Gurdasani. I am a clinical epidemiologist and senior lecturer in machine learning at Queen Mary University of London. And I currently work on uh, COVID-related research where I look at uh, the impact of different interventions on pandemic trajectory with COVID. Dr. Deepti Gurdasani, welcome to The Dose. Thanks for having me. We know that at least one B1617 or Delta variant, as they're now calling it, is spreading in Canada. It drove outbreaks in a number of provinces recently, although we don't know how much, as it's not being sequenced widely in Canada, the UK has seen a rapid rise in uh, the Delta variant. How quickly has it spread there? It spread incredibly quickly here. So in a matter of four to six weeks, it's a variant that has gone from uh, almost not being present here to being the most dominant variant here. It's also a variant that has risen against a background of the so-called Kent variant, which is B117, which we already knew was highly transmissible. And that's the really concerning bit. And we know from our data in the UK, which is actually quite complete, that it's risen at double the rate of the so-called Kent variant which suggests it's very much fitter than this variant. And what I mean by fitter is that there is some advantage to this variant in our population. It could be a higher transmissibility or it could be a better sort of escape against vaccines or both. And it's increasingly looking like it's both. What impact is the Delta variant having on your healthcare system right now? So we've already seen the sort of devastation that's been caused by the so-called Delta variant in India. And I think, you know, that should have raised alarm here quite early on because we saw massive surges of cases, very rapid spread with hospitals being overwhelmed in India. That's not where we are here. What we're seeing in uh, the UK is early exponential rises in cases uh, associated with higher levels of hospitalization and very early rises in deaths as well. Initially, this variant was more localized, so we were seeing spread in some parts of England, particularly the northwest and parts of London, but now it's become far more widespread, uh, as often happens with these variants if they're not contained early on. Now, we have some very smart listeners, and they know what the R0 or the R0 value is. 
what is the R naught value? You know, what is the the replication number uh, for the Delta variant that you're seeing so far in the UK? So it's very hard to know what the R0 value is because the R0 value is the reproduction number of the variant when there are no restrictions in place. So it's a baseline reproduction value. So the average number of people that will be infected by one person who's infected. What we know is the the current R value, which um, reflects sort of a combination of factors, including variant spread and uh, the effect of restrictions. But given the original R0 of the original variant was around three. And the so-called Kent variant was 60% more transmissible than that. And this variant is about 60% more transmissible than that. We would expect the R0 to be around six. Six would be humongous, uh, except but except that we do have controls in, in place that reduce that. Am I right? Yes, absolutely. I mean, we don't know the exact R0. So this is a bit of a guesstimate because we've not seen the behavior of this uh, variant, you know, without any restrictions in place, which is fortunate because, you know, that's not something that we want to really see. So the estimates are being made amid restrictions. And of course, the level of transmissibility within uh, restrictions may not really reflect the level of transmissibility at baseline. But we do expect the R0 is around five to six. And that has huge implications. It means that we need even more restrictions to keep something like this in check. And it also has huge implications for what we call the herd immunity threshold. The herd immunity threshold is the proportion of a population that needs to be immune, let's say through vaccination, for us to achieve an R level below one. And by that, I mean for the pandemic to start shrinking by itself without any restrictions in place. And so far uh, with the earlier variants, this was thought to be around 60%. But as we get more and more transmissible variants, this threshold rises, which means even with vaccinating high proportions of the population, we may not be able to achieve pandemic shrinkage with vaccination alone. And that's very concerning to many scientists. We're going to get into uh, the impact of vaccination and, and how important two doses are, you know, as opposed to just getting one dose of the vaccine. But I do want to ask you a quick question. I've noticed in the media reports surrounding what's happening in the UK right now, they're referring to this as a third wave. Is that what you is that what you're calling it? Yes, in the UK is being referred to as a third wave. Um, uh, we consider our first wave to have been in March 2020, the second wave to have been sort of between autumn and winter going into January this year, which was a, a fairly long wave. And what we're seeing is early exponential rises. And our scientific advisory group is predicting that in June, we are going to have a third wave during which we could reach a level of hospitalizations, even with vaccination that could exceed our second wave. And that's really concerning. So what people who are listening to us in North America need to understand is that is that your third wave, which is dominated, which which is increasingly dominated by the Delta variant, would be Canada's fourth wave. And uh, and that's because our third wave was dominated by what you call the Kent variant or the Alpha variant. So 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 uh, the reason why I'm mentioning this is that there's a lot of people listening to us who would think, ah, we're getting past the third wave, so we must be we must be finished. And 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 what you're saying is that this is all awaiting us in the future. So let's talk about vaccines. What do we know about how the vaccines work against this new Delta variant? So worryingly, we do see a level of escape with this variance with vaccines. So we see that the effectiveness of vaccines against symptomatic illness is reduced with this variant. It's more reduced for 
single dose compared to two doses. So, for example, with a single dose of Pfizer and AstraZeneca, which are the vaccines that are being used in the UK, so we have data on, we find that the effectiveness against disease is reduced from about 50% to about 33%. And for two doses, uh, the effectiveness is reduced for Pfizer and AstraZeneca to uh, 89% for Pfizer, which is still quite high, and about 60% for AstraZeneca. But the reminder is that this is effectiveness against symptomatic illness. So, you know, whether you have symptomatic disease with COVID, we expect that the protection against severe disease will be higher. So we hope that at least hospitalizations and deaths will be prevented to a large extent with two doses, but the protection with one dose might not be adequate. Canada has placed a high priority on getting one dose to as many people as possible. At this moment, over 51% of the population in Canada has had at least one dose. We know the numbers are going to rise dramatically uh, uh, in the weeks ahead. We're just starting second doses in some provinces. So how critical is it that people receive two doses uh, of COVID vaccine to be protected from this variant? It's absolutely critical. I mean, it's critical to the extent that the UK has now prioritized second doses among people because one dose clearly doesn't give the level of protection that people need. Even laboratory data show us, uh, at least with AstraZeneca, for example, that there's very low levels of neutralization with a single dose, even in terms of uh, antibodies in the laboratory. Um, So, you know, it's very important people understand that they're not protected with a single dose. Even with two doses, there is a level of breakthrough. And it's very important that people continue to take the precautions that they need to take to protect themselves and other people, but also take their second dose when offered because uh, it's critical to boost that immune response to provide a high level of protection against this variant. Remind us what the breakthrough is. Uh, So breakthrough is when you have received vaccines, when you receive two doses of vaccines, you can still get infected, you can still transmit, and sometimes, rarely, you can still get severely ill and get hospitalized, and very rarely, you can still die. Of course, the, the, the risk of this happening to somebody who has been vaccinated with two doses is much lower than somebody who's unvaccinated, but there is Uh, a level of risk, and that risk is called breakthrough. And indeed, you have had deaths in the UK uh, in people who have had two doses of vaccine, haven't you? Absolutely. And that's what's worrying. So among the 12 people we know who've died with this variant, two of them were people who were fully vaccinated with two doses of vaccine and with adequate time having passed following vaccination for them to have developed the full immune response. And that tells us that even people who are fully vaccinated can still uh, die because uh, although individual risk is lowered, if enough people do get ill, ultimately there will be people who are fully vaccinated who will die, which is why it's critical that we don't rely solely on vaccines, but also take the other precautions we need to take to protect ourselves. We're going to take a short break, but we'll be back in a moment. One of the pieces of good news during the pandemic is that children have been less likely to be to be affected by COVID. I've read that Singapore's health minister said that the Delta variant appeared to make children sicker than other variants. What data is there to support that? So in the UK, the data we have so far is showing us that there are very large outbreaks happening in schools. In fact, what we've seen is that the rate of infection in school-age children has rapidly increased and uh, is much higher than in other age groups. So, for example, in one of the first places to get uh, affected by this variant, which is called Bolton in the Northwest, we know that school-age children have about three times the rate of infection uh, of even young adults who are unvaccinated. And what we're seeing is that Uh, The spread is happening rapidly in schools 
and then spreading back into the community. So those school mitigations are very, very critical to prevent spread of this variant back into the community. And it's not a unique pattern. We saw this pattern very early on uh, with spread of the so-called Kent variant as well in November and December last year, where again, we saw first it spread among school-age children, became dominant there, and then spread into other age groups. Schools are closed in a few provinces in Canada, and the debate is raging in Ontario, uh, where we where we prepare this broadcast about whether to open schools in June for a few weeks. Um, so, what would you say about that? So I think schools are a major area of spread. So if schools are to be opened, there needs to be a lot of focus on mitigations. Um, I, I think the debate of school open versus school closed needs to change to uh, having schools open, but with very strict mitigations in place, as there's data to suggest that with very good multi-layered mitigations in place, we can prevent spread within schools and back into the community. And by mitigations, I mean mitigations focused on aerosol transmission rather than hygiene. So things like masks in primaries and secondaries, as recommended by the CDC, uh, a lot of focus on ventilation. So carbon dioxide monitors, keeping, you know, windows and, and doors open, having that outside air coming in, but also having supplemental ventilation through air filtration devices as and when needed, keeping class sizes small, having rotor learning if required to keep sizes of class uh, classes small uh, and have you know outdoor uh, instruction outdoor PE uh, so physical education and, and outdoor learning as far as possible you know it, it's interesting that you say that Deepti because I my sense is that is that it it's only now that Canada uh, the school system the healthcare system is really coming to grips with the implications of aerosol transmission of these new variants uh, and, and what that would mean for safe opening up of schools. Uh, and I'm not sure that schools uh, that they have, have developed the infrastructure to deal with widespread in, uh, aerosol transmission. So that's something that we're going to be watching very, very carefully. Um, I want to ask you about something else. Vietnam says it has detected yet another variant of the coronavirus, which appears to be a mix of mutations from the alpha and delta uh, variants. Officials say that it has fast aerosol transmission. So how concerned should we be about this newer variant? I think we should be very concerned. And it's very, very clear that adaptation is a continuous process. It's always happening. And what we are picking up is essentially the tip of the iceberg. So we only tend to pick up these variants when they become associated with surges um, or loss of control of the pandemic in places. And that's what we're seeing in Vietnam now. The fact is there are many of these variants circulating. So if you look at the UK surveillance, we have the so-called, you know, the Delta variant now, which has mutations on top of it that are similar to well, the so-called South Africa variant as well. So what we're seeing is adaptation with the same mutations that are occurring again and again. And these are mutations that will favor the virus, very likely be associated with higher transmissibility or escape from vaccines. I find it really unfortunate that lack of control of transmission in some countries, for example, the UK, Brazil, and now India is now at a point in time where it's endangering control that many parts of the world have achieved through very early rapid public health responses and a focus on elimination or zero COVID like Vietnam, like Taiwan, and like Malaysia. And we are seeing outbreaks now in these areas with these highly transmissible variants that are now very hard to control, even with their excellent surveillance systems, because they so rapidly spread into the community. 
And yet, on the other side of things, we've been watching with envy as the UK opens up, pubs are opening, people are socializing. The British government is looking to June 21st as the date that it's going to lift even more restrictions. As a scientist, what do you make of the reopening plans, given all the things that we've been talking about? I mean, they're absolutely not evidence-based. The UK already had a level of reopening on the 17th of May, you know, when a lot more indoor socializing, etc. was allowed, large gatherings were allowed. Um, and even then, our scientific advisory body, which is called SAGE, advised the government not to go ahead, because even then the warning was that if the government moved ahead with this, it would lead to a third wave with a very high level of hospitalizations, um, uh, even with the level of vaccinations we have. So what the government is doing right now is clearly not in line with um, scientific advice and advice from other experts. Uh, it's very clear that we don't have a comprehensive border strategy, so we risk to importing even more variants, uh, which could potentially pose a threat in the future. There's no reason to think this wouldn't happen again. And, you know, while we should be strengthening mitigations in schools where much of the spread is happening, we've actually removed recommendations from masking in schools, and there's very little being done to protect children in schools apart from hygiene and hand washing measures, which we know don't have a huge impact. If you had the government's ear right now, what would you be telling them to do in very broad terms? I think I'd focus on on three things particularly. One would be comprehensive border uh, restrictions, and we need comprehensive managed quarantine and isolation at borders like countries like New Zealand, uh, Australia, and many Southeast Asian countries have had. I would say we need strong mitigations in schools. So bring our mitigations in line with CDC recommendations with the focus on masks and ventilation. And the third thing would be to really have strengthen up our test, trace and isolate system, put it in the hands of local authorities who can manage it best and increase the support for isolation. Because unless people feel secure enough financially to isolate, they are not going to get tested. I can detect a certain uh, frustration in, in your voice. Yes, I mean, it is frustrating. We've essentially been in lockdown or some sort of restrictions in the UK for the last 15 months. We've had you know, schools closed, closed for four months in that period with massive educational disruption uh, and a massive hit to the economy. And, and you know, over 150,000 people here have died and more than one million people here are living with long COVID, the consequences of government negligence. And every time we've been in this situation, experts have come forward and said, if you don't listen, we're going to be in a dire strait in one month's time. Uh, but we've negligently not taken action early, delayed action as far as possible, which has meant late lockdowns, long lockdowns, huge disruption to people's lives, economy, and of course, mass death, which has been a key feature of the UK response. Looking at the UK might be looking at our future right now. At least that's, that's what we fear. What kind of timeline do we have for stopping a surge here that's driven by the Delta variant? Not long. The window is actually very, very narrow because once it gets widespread into the community and dominant, it's very hard to contain it because you need very, very strict restrictions then. And this is not a variant that we should live with. It's something that we should look to eliminate. So if I were the Canadian government, I would look towards pivot towards elimination at this point in time, uh, because I think that's the only way to, I guess, protect vaccine resources and also ensure that some level of control of the pandemic is maintained. Because 
Every few months across the globe, we are seeing new variants arise and each variant is being replaced on a global and regional level by more transmissible variants, by variants that are more likely to escape. And this is not a situation that's going to change unless we exercise the agency that we have to prevent it. This isn't inevitable. And to prevent virus adaptation and virus import, we need comprehensive border restrictions and to follow elimination or zero COVID strategies. And by that, I don't mean eradication of the virus because that's very difficult, but I mean bringing community transmission to zero or near zero and maintaining it at that level for as long as possible until most of the population is protected with vaccines. So what urgent message would you have for officials here in Canada uh, about reopening plans with this variant just beginning to spread? I would say it's very, very dangerous to reopen at this point in time. Do not let this variant spread. It is a very dangerous variant. We don't even know all of its properties yet. But what we've seen so far of it is that it's caused caused devastation across most of the subcontinental region. And now we are seeing an early third wave in the UK. Uh, it's It's going to be very hard to contain this if it's allowed to spread. So take aggressive action. Take aggressive action now when it's easier to take and you need to take it for shorter periods of time rather than waiting for it to lead to a surge in cases and then another prolonged lockdown. Dr. Deepti Gurdasani, that was a very sobering conversation, but I want to thank you for speaking with us. Thanks for having me. Dr. Deepti Gurdasani is a clinical epidemiologist and senior lecturer in machine learning at Queen Mary University of London. Here's your dose of smart advice. A new variant of COVID called Delta or B1617 has caused rising rates in the UK and has arrived in Canada. Preliminary evidence suggests it is 50 to 60% more transmissible than the variant that has caused the third wave in Canada. Vaccines are effective against the Delta variant, but doctors believe one dose is not enough. You need two doses to get adequate protection. Because the Delta variant spreads more quickly, the people tracking it believe we need to rethink our strategies for ending lockdowns. They believe we have a short window of time to control new cases through testing, tracing, and isolation of new cases. I know this isn't what you want to hear. The bottom line is that COVID seems to vary continuously. But we can ride out the storm by staying vigilant and by fully vaccinating as many Canadians as quickly as possible. If you have topics you'd like to hear on The Dose or questions you'd like answered, email us at thedose at cbc.ca. You can also tweet me at nightshiftmd or at cbcwhitecoat using the hashtag thedosecbc. You can find The Dose and White Coat Black Art wherever you get your podcasts. Please do us a favor and rate our shows highly so more people can find us. This edition of The Dose was produced by Willow Smith with digital support from Fabiola Carletti. Thanks to Anne-Marie Caragonjo for technical operations. The Dose wants you to be better informed about your health. But if you're looking for medical advice, see your healthcare provider. I'm Dr. Brian Goldman. Until your next dose. For more CBC podcasts, go to cbc.ca/podcasts.